You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. He actually became Abdul Hakim Mohammed. He was no longer Carlos Bledsoe. Martin Blesdo's son, Carlos, once a bright, happy-go-lucky hip-hop fan, had fallen in with Islamic radicals as a college student in Tennessee. His sister says they transformed him. They instill into your head that what you're doing is right and you're doing it for your new family, which is the extremists. When Carlos shot and killed a soldier at a U.S. military recruiting office in 2009, the family struggled with anger and grief with nowhere to turn. They decided to help others who faced the same question they had. What do you do when a loved one subscribes to a radical ideology? whether it's jihad, white supremacy, QAnon, or something else. Parents for Peace, I feel like it's going to bring these families closer so that we can cry on each other's shoulders. And for those that may be questioning what their child are doing, I think this will open their eyes. The demand for the services of Parents for Peace has never been higher. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany, who's written about the group. David, start by telling us about the raid on the house of a young man who also had been radicalized. This was back in November of 2018, and a mother in the southern U.S., who we're calling Amy in this story, wakes up to the sound of pounding on her front door at the early hours of the morning. And outside the house are a group of FBI agents, and they've come looking for her teenage son, who we're calling Jack in the story. And the reason is that Jack has been sucked into the world of Islamic radicalism online. He's talking in forums with supporters of the Islamic State. He's discussing the possibility of attacks on national landmarks like the White House and the Washington Monument. And all of this has gotten the attention of the FBI, which shows up to raid the house and see whether there's any sign that Jack is actually preparing to launch a real terrorist attack. Was he charged? 
he was eventually charged in juvenile court with making terrorist threats against the U.S. and also with essentially obstructing the investigation because he deleted a chat app from his phone after the FBI showed up. But ultimately, he received a year of probation. The feds didn't really find any solid evidence that he was actually about to launch this sort of attack. And he was 16 at the time. So, you know, luckily for him, the case ended up in in juvenile court. His mom said, people understand porn. They don't understand your kid is doing ISIS. But she was talking about this as an addiction. Yeah, so a lot of people who struggle with extremism, the members of extremist groups, compare the kind of psychological experience of being part of one of these movements to an addiction. You know, trying to break out of it produces similar kind of lingering effects as if you're breaking an addiction to drugs or alcohol. And this kind of thrill or the high that you get from being part of it is also akin to the sort of experience of being on drugs or being drunk or what have you. And so it's a way of thinking about this problem that anecdotal evidence supports and which academics are beginning to study in a more systematic way to see if there are lessons of how you can combat this problem that stem from that recognition that there are similarities with addiction. And the mom tried all sorts of things before she found Parents for Peace. Her son, Jack, is autistic, and people who are autistic are are sometimes susceptible to the type of predatory recruitment that can lead to extremism. And so she sought all sorts of treatments for him. She sent him to a residential school for kids with behavioral problems. She introduced him to a rotating cast of doctors and therapists to try to treat this problem. And eventually she found a group called Parents for Peace which is a nonprofit that has been around since 2015 and which specializes in helping people de-radicalize in sort of luring and kind of coaxing them away from extremist groups. How would you describe their treatment method? It's difficult to describe precisely, but it's somewhere at the intersection of addiction treatment, family counseling, therapy, the kind of cult deprogramming efforts of the 1970s, it's this sort of hybrid approach. A lot of it is about figuring out what the underlying problem is and trying to address that. You know, maybe this person's drawn to an extremist group because they're lonely. Let's find a way for them to make friends so that they get that kind of sense of camaraderie from somewhere other than a dangerous extremist group. Some of it is about coaching the family to respond to the loved one's extremism in a more productive way. So instead of freaking out every time they show a QAnon video on their phone, try to ask them open-ended questions about why they're drawn to that video. Try to understand them, show them love and attention, and try to combat this underlying issue that might make them vulnerable to conspiracy theories, that sort of thing. And then ultimately what this group will sometimes do is is introduce someone who's in an extremist group to a former extremist, somebody who's been in the group and left. They'll kind of mentor them, befriend them, and try to coax them away. The woman now in charge, Miriam Churchill, said, I thought this was really interesting, never argue with extremists. Don't react angrily. It's tough not to try to argue someone out of something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly the temptation when somebody starts voicing horrible white supremacist ideas or kind of anti-vaxxer sentiment is to fight back and argue and prove them wrong. But what Miriam has found in her time working with families is that ultimately that's counterproductive, that feeling like you're under assault will just make you want to dig in even further and make you less likely to leave that type of conspiracy behind. And, you know, that kind of makes sense on a sort of intuitive level. And so her advice is not to do that, again, to try to kind of understand the underlying problems that might make you susceptible to believing these things and then to try to combat those. 
So extremism is the drug of choice. And in Jack's case, he went from one extreme ideology to another. Yes. So this is something that the group Parents for Peace actually sees quite a lot, that people will switch from one ideology to the other. And, you know, certainly when I was beginning my reporting, you know, I didn't understand that at all. It seemed it didn't seem to make sense to me how somebody could go from being an Islamic radical one day to being a white supremacist the next day. It didn't fit with my understanding of how this works. But, you know, actually, when you when you think about it more deeply, it does make sense. You know, people are drawn to extremism often not because of the substance of the ideology, but because being a part of a group fills some sort of spiritual void. And and, and the substance of the ideology is almost secondary to the experience of, of subscribing to the ideology at all. And so it makes sense that somebody might switch from, from, from one form to another. And that's something that the group sees a lot. So in Jack's case, you know, with the help of, of you know, the lessons of mom learned from Parents for Peace and some of his kind of own independent research videos he was watching online, he gradually starts drifting away from Islamic extremism, eventually kind of renounces the Quran, um, becomes sort of virulently anti-Muslim, which is its own sort of problem. Um, but then also at the same time begins embracing or at least flirting with, with right-wing extremism. Um, he has ancestors who fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War, and he starts wearing a Confederate flag baseball cap everywhere. He decorates his room with Confederate flags. Um, and his mom you know, doesn't think that he's becoming a white supremacist exactly. You know, He's not expressing animus toward other races or anything like that. But he is sort of beginning to adopt some of the, some of the trappings of white supremacy. Um, and you know, at times, we'll like, express views that that seem that seem potentially problematic you know at one point he you know uses the phrase white power in an argument with a sibling um another time his mom is sort of urging him to stop wearing this confederate cap out in public and he says no no this is my history this is my heritage so you can see how that you know could easily especially for someone with his history turn into um a real a real problem do they call it deprogramming or does that sound too cultish yeah, Parents for Peace prefers the term de-radicalization, you know, deprogramming. It's never a term that's really been precisely defined, but it's definitely associated with those kind of extreme methods of the 1970s when cult deprogrammers would literally kidnap people who were in cults who subscribed to strange, exotic religious principles that their parents didn't understand. They would kidnap those people and deprive them of food until they were prepared to leave behind whatever the cult was. And so a lot of the groups that are doing this type of work now want to stay away from that type of terminology. So they'll use, they'll use the word de-radicalization instead. Is there a lot of money in this? So groups like Parents for Peace and another similar group called Life After Hate are nonprofits that don't charge money. They generate income through donations and government grants and those sorts of means. But there's also a cadre of for-profit deprogrammers, de-radicalizers out there. And these tend to be the sort of final legacy of that 1970s era. You know, these are people who are in cults and who then made careers out of deprogramming. And they don't use the same extreme techniques of that period, but they charge families tens of thousands of dollars to conduct interventions to kind of insinuate themselves into the life of a cult member and then eventually reveal themselves as, you know, hey, I'm a deprogrammer and I'm here to take you away from this and I'm going to persuade you why you should leave. And this is fraught with risks, obviously. There's no guarantee of success. You could spend $20,000 on one of these projects and then end up no better than when you started. Or I heard stories about deprogrammers botching interventions and so families lose a lot of money and then also 
their family member who they were trying to help is actually even more alienated ultimately. And so there are all sorts of problems associated with this. So Stephen Hassan is, um, you know, one of the most well-known kind of for-profit deprogrammers, de-radicalizers. He was a member of the Unification Church, you know, back decades ago. You know, he was considered a Mooney. Um, he ended up leaving leaving that group and starting a career as a, as a deprogrammer. Um, and so he charges $5,000 a day to work with families who are trying to extract somebody from an extremist group or from, you know, a cult. Um, he's recently kind of pivoted more from helping cult members to helping people who are kind of sucked down the QAnon rabbit hole. Um, he published a book recently called The Cult of Trump. Um, he's the sort of guy who's on TV all the time talking about how, you know, Trump supporters are brainwashed and that sort of thing. He's basically trafficking in kind of theories about how this works that are disputed by academics and then charging huge amounts of money to try to help people. I mean, there are certainly, you know, records of, of, of kind of successful cases that, that he, he's worked on, but um, it's definitely a, a different, you know, costlier approach than what, what other groups are offering. Is that extreme cult deprogramming happening anymore? You know, there may be kind of anecdotal examples of that happening occasionally now, but that it's not happening at anywhere near at the level that it did in the 70s. And that's partly because there were legal repercussions for the people who were doing this. There were criminal prosecutions. There were civil suits. And and that, you know, really kind of changed how this works. Um, and, you know, it's happening it's happening much less often, if at all, anymore. And when, when, and when you talk to people who are in the kind of cult deprogramming space now, they, they'll say, oh, we would never do anything like that. So as far as groups that are free of charge, how many are there out there? Really a handful. You know, I know of two or three off the top of my head. There may be, there may be others, but it's a very kind of small and, and, and still sort of growing community. Um, this sort of work was really pioneered in Europe in the late 90s. There was an effort in, in Norway to help right-wing extremists leave these sorts of groups. And it only really, these sorts of efforts only really have gained traction in the U.S. over the last decade. So we're sort of behind where, where Europe is on this, on this type of work. And some defendants charged in the January 6th riots are using this idea of de-radicalization at sentencing to try to get a more lenient sentence. I mean, this is a fascinating aspect of this type of work. What you're seeing is that people who are facing prison sentences because of extremist activity are able to say to judges, look, I'm trying to get de-radicalized. I'm working with a group like Parents for Peace, or I'm re-educating myself and reading all sorts of literature about racial inequality in America, for instance. And that shows that I deserve a more lenient sentence. It's really similar to someone who's charged with drunk driving who starts going to AA meetings and says to a judge, look, I'm trying to get treatment. Give me a lenient sentence. I'm proving to you that if I'm allowed to return to society, I'll behave myself and won't be a threat to other people. Now, of course, there's a risk here. There's a risk of dishonesty and manipulation and people abusing these sorts of resources. And, you know, that's something that the courts are going to have to kind of figure out how to sort of protect. And has Parents for Peace been involved in any of these sentencings? 
The one case that where we've seen this play out kind of most obviously is in Michigan, Ty Garvin, who was one of the right-wing extremists who was charged with the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot back in 2020. He was the first of that group of conspirators to plead guilty. And his lawyers reached out to parents for peace, and he spoke with the organization over Zoom and had various meetings with them talking about his personal history. They were trying to kind of help him get to a place where he's not further radicalized in prison. And then during his sentencing, his lawyers brought this up repeatedly and argued to the judge that he deserved a more lenient sentence. And it's difficult to pinpoint where that outreach fit into the broader picture of his case, but he did end up receiving a sentence that was significantly below the maximum possible that he could have received. It was also because he was the first in this group to plead guilty. He was cooperating, that type of thing. But it certainly didn't hurt that he was seeking this sort of help. Is there any study being done to back up that this is a process that works long term? So there's some data from European efforts that suggests that it works pretty well. In terms of the work that Parents for Peace is doing, there's just way less data on that. And it's a real question mark. There's certainly anecdotal examples of this working, but can they show systematically that they have refined an approach that really addresses this issue in a meaningful way? And they're working with researchers at Harvard and Boston University who are just now beginning the work of like tracking cases over the long term. And that means not just does this person leave the extremist group and reject terrorism or white supremacy or whatever two months later. It's like, where are they two years later? Where are they four years later? You know, how does their life change after the group's intervention? That's work that'll take a really long time to do, and it's only only really starting now. How much call is there for this type of intervention? I think there's a huge amount of demand. Parents for Peace saw a threefold increase in calls to its national hotline during the pandemic from before the pandemic. You know, as people stayed home or spending more time online, you know, all those sorts of phenomena that we're familiar with. And after January 6th, you're also seeing a surge in families seeking treatment for loved ones who are being stuck down these rabbit holes. So it's certainly something that's in demand. There's no question that extremism is a big problem in the modern U.S. and that we need to figure out a way to deal with it. And a lot of attention has focused on how do we get social media companies to stop spreading this information that leads to extremism. And that's certainly a big problem and one that needs to be addressed. So what these groups are trying to do is address a different sort of problem, which is, okay, you've got a family member who is already an extremist. What do you do then? And that's a complicated question. Thanks, David. That's David Yaffe Bellany, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The demands for justice and police accountability during the demonstrations following George Floyd's murder revived questions about the controversial doctrine of qualified immunity. But this week, the Supreme Court sided with police in a pair of cases alleging excessive force by officers in California and Oklahoma. The justices ruled unanimously that the officers were protected by qualified immunity and could not be sued because previous case law hadn't given them clear guidance that their conduct violated the Constitution. Joining me is an expert on qualified immunity, Joanna Schwartz, a professor at UCLA Law School. Joanna, explain what qualified immunity is. So qualified immunity is a legal defense in civil cases. And the defense means that a police officer or other government official who has violated the Constitution is protected from being sued unless there's clearly established law showing that what they did was unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court in recent years has offered more and more restrictive descriptions of what it means to clearly establish the law so that they've now really sent the message that you need a prior court case where the almost exact same thing happened before and was ruled unconstitutional in order to clearly establish the law. In both cases, the justices overturned lower court decisions that went against the officers. Can you just tell us a little bit about the cases? One was from the Ninth Circuit and one was from the Tenth Circuit. They were both cases where police were called about some domestic incident. You know, the facts in each are slightly different. In the case out of the Ninth Circuit, officers in arresting a person put them down on the ground and put their knee on the person's back, albeit briefly. And in the case out of the Tenth Circuit, the man was near his garage. The police arrived, and it sounds like the man sort of stepped back into his garage, had a hammer that he swung sort of like a baseball bat, it says in the opinion, several feet away from the officers, and then the officers shot him. The court said it's not enough that a rule be suggested by then existing precedent. The rule's contours must be so well defined that it's clear to a reasonable officer that his conduct was unlawful in the situation he confronted. Are officers really aware of what these court cases say, or is this standard sort of a ruse on the court's part? It's a terrific question. I think the shortest answer is it is a bit of a ruse. When the Supreme Court explains why there needs to be a prior court decision with nearly identical facts, they talk about notice, that the officer needs to be on notice 
that the contours of the Constitution are hazy and we need a clear articulation of what is unconstitutional for an officer to be unnoticed. But you are absolutely right. Officers are not educated about the facts and holdings of the court decisions that the Supreme Court says are necessary to clearly establish the law. And I actually, in an article that was published earlier this year, studied hundreds of policies and trainings for California law enforcement agencies about the use of force, which is the issue that is the basis for these two decisions. And what I found was Officers are trained about the sort of high-level framework that the Supreme Court articulated in a case called Graham versus Connor about the reasonableness of force depending on the totality of circumstances given the perspective of the officer at the time. But they are not trained about the facts and holdings of the court decisions that the Supreme Court says are necessary to clearly establish the law. Instead, they're taught those broad principles and taught how to apply them with various hypotheticals that are not drawn from court cases. And if you think for a moment about what it would mean for officers actually to rely upon these prior decisions, it's fantastical. There are hundreds or thousands of opinions that could clearly establish the law just for use of force cases. And then there's all sorts of other things that police officers and other government officials do that also have their own bodies of case law to learn about those cases. You know, in California, you get, uh, I think it's 24 hours every two years of training. Learning about those cases, spending just five minutes on those cases would take up all of the training hours that police officers currently have. And then you have to expect that officers would actually retain and remember the facts and holdings of those cases. And then in the split second that they are required to make the kinds of decisions that sometimes lead to uses of force, be able to distinguish between the precise facts in these various cases. It simply is fantastical. It is implausible. It makes no sense at all as a standard that is justified by notice goals. And so then what is the purpose? I return to where you started with your question. It feels like a bit of a root. And in the case here involving the California police officer, the Ninth Circuit said that existing precedent did put the officer on notice. And in the case involving the Oklahoma police officers, the Tenth Circuit pointed to several cases that it said clearly established that the conduct was unlawful. So are the justices saying, no, there has to be a case that we decided that's exactly on point? Well, the Supreme Court since about 2012 has been writing in several different qualified immunity opinions that Supreme Court decisions clearly establish the law, but that they'll only assume for the purposes of argument that circuit court decisions, court of appeals decisions can also clearly establish the law. And they've said this multiple times. They've never actually come out and said that only Supreme Court cases can clearly establish the law. But every time they issue a decision that has that kind of caveat, It's very shocking and surprising, given that the Supreme Court only decides a handful of cases, you know, involving civil rights issues and the ability to sue every year. And when they do, they very rarely rule on the question that the Supreme Court says is necessary to clearly establish the law, which is a ruling on whether the Constitution was violated. And note that in these cases, in these decisions that the Supreme Court issued, where they said there was no clearly established law, there was not a prior court case, 
holding similar conduct unconstitutional. They also didn't rule on the constitutionality of the conduct in these cases. So they did nothing to clarify the law moving forward. There was no noted dissent. Did that surprise you at all? It did and it didn't. Uh, There have been rumblings within the Supreme Court that qualified immunity doctrine should change. Justice Thomas has said that it should be reconsidered. Justice Sotomayor has said that it sends a message to police that they can shoot first and think later. And there was a decision in November of 2020, a case called Taylor versus Riojas, where the court seemed to be backing away from its most robust description of what clearly established law was. In that case, which involved a prisoner who was kept in a cell for several days that was completely unsanitary, unfit for human habitation, the Supreme Court said you don't need a prior case for it to be obvious that it was unconstitutional to put this person in these conditions for this amount of time. And when the Supreme Court issued that decision, I and Others who study this issue thought that it could be a indication that the court was stepping back from its most extreme descriptions of the doctrine and what was necessary to clearly establish the law. So with these two unsigned unanimous per curiam opinions, it seems like the court was not opening the door quite as widely as I had hoped to a vision of qualified immunity that that didn't require clearly established law at this level of precision that they seem to do in these two cases. Do you think the differences between police officers who the court sees as having to make split-second decisions and prison guards? It could be. It certainly is true that the officers in the prison case had a lot more time to deliberate about the steps that they were taking. But then it seems to me like the more sensible answer is to reach the constitutional question and make a decision, issue a decision that can then offer some clarity in these circumstances. The idea that the court is recognizing and accommodating the split-second decisions police might make through qualified immunity, which as we've said, is a doctrine based on this idea of notice that has no basis in reality, really feels like a missed opportunity for the court to offer some clarity about the law. Doctrine of qualified immunity has come under increased scrutiny following the 2020 murder of George Floyd and other acts of excessive force by police. Does it affect the way police officers act to know that they're basically going to be covered in a civil case afterwards? So one important thing to remember about qualified immunity, and I think it gets obscured a lot in the current debate, is that qualified immunity is not what shields police officers from paying settlements and judgments from their own bank accounts. It's been described, and defenders of qualified immunity have said that it's necessary to protect officers from being bankrupted for lawsuits based on, you know, reasonable mistakes made in a split second. But officers are already protected from having to pay in these cases because states and local governments have what are called indemnification rules and policies 
that provide that when an officer is sued, their employer will pay the settlement or judgment. It's a matter of law that they are obligated to do so. And there are some uh, exceptions that are carved out into those statutes when officers have acted maliciously or are criminally prosecuted. <clears throat> but when I studied police indemnification practices around the country, I found that 99.98% of the dollars that are paid to people in police misconduct suits come from government budgets, not from police officers' bank accounts. So qualified immunity does not provide that shield. Uh, and I think the Fourth Amendment already provides a shield to protect reasonable officers from constitutional violations. So what does ending qualified immunity or what does qualified immunity do and what would ending qualified immunity do? I, I think that that qualified immunity right now makes the law unclear for law enforcement and for courts and for the general public. There are parts of this country where courts have not ruled yet that it is protected by the First Amendment to record the police, a concept that has been critically important to our current conversation about policing and an issue that has been particularly relevant since the advent of smartphones. But in some parts of the country, courts have not yet ruled on that question. And I think the reason for that can be traced right back to qualified immunity, because courts can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether the Constitution was violated. And that's just one example of the way in which the law becomes less clear because of qualified immunity. Without qualified immunity, there would be more clarity that could then be incorporated into police policies and trainings and into our general understanding. And I also agree with Justice Sotomayor that these decisions with horrifying facts where officers are shielded from liability because there doesn't happen to be a prior court case with virtually identical facts sends a shoot first, think later uh, message to police. So I think that ending qualified immunity or greatly limiting it would have very important effects for law enforcement. But it still would not mean that officers would be personally, financially responsible for paying settlements and judgments in these cases, or that they would be found to have violated the Constitution when they made reasonable mistakes. So it seems like the likely path to change this qualified immunity doctrine is through legislation. Do you see that happening at the state level? I know that there are, I think, seven state qualified immunity bills have been enacted. There is motion and activity on the state level. And I think that the gold standard really is Colorado, where a bill was passed in June of 2020, right after the murder of George Floyd. And I think buoyed by a sort of shared sentiment in that moment that something really needed to change. I think that their bill is the most ambitious, but there have been other bills that have followed in New Mexico and in New York City and some other places as well. There have also been many states in which qualified immunity bills have been introduced and there have been hearings. I've participated in some of those hearings and they have been shelved for the moment or rejected really in each time based on what I consider to be groundless fears 
about bankrupt officers and lawsuits that challenge reasonable conduct, sort of the typical fears about what a world without qualified immunity would look like that, that are not based in reality. Is there anything happening on the federal level? In summer of 2020, the House passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which included, among many, many different provisions, an end to qualified immunity. And that did not move forward. Then, nearing the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, that bill was reintroduced and repassed in the House. And again, it stalled in the Senate. In the summer of 2020, Tim Scott described qualified immunity reform as a poison pill to the negotiations. And in 2021, it seemed perhaps that there was going to be some common ground for a shift to qualified immunity, a limitation to qualified immunity, but the negotiations in that bill have fallen apart as well. Thanks for being on the show, Joanna. That's Professor Joanna Schwartz of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.